Good morning, New Hope. It is good to see you if you want to take out your outlines. I'm really excited about this new series we're going to do called Roots of Our Faith. Now, some of you here today have recently given your hearts to Jesus. Some of you have given your hearts to Jesus a long time ago. Those who've just given their hearts to Jesus, some of you may have grown up as kids and you went to Sunday school, and, but you've recently come back to faith. And we're excited about that at New Hope. But it's very important whether you're just brand new in the faith or you've been on the road a while, a while that we remind ourselves of the heritage and the very base foundation of our faith. In fact, the Bible says right there on your outline and on the screen in Jude chapter 1, verse 3. By the way, who, who's read Jude chapter 2? Anybody recently? Ah, 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 just testing. <laughs> there is no Jude. So if somebody says having a chance to read a chapter of the Bible, that's an, you know, or a book, you can just read one book and you're done. Jude 1, 3. I actually mentioned this last week. Contend for the faith. Well, that's fresh. Contend for the faith. That was once for all. There's nothing else. There's no additional revelation entrusted to the saints. This has been entrusted to you to carry faithfully. The good news is truth never changes. Aren't you glad for that? And every generation of Christianity is charged with the task of passing on the faith to the next generation. And for 2,000 years, the church family, I'm talking generically here, has used three primary tools to pass the baton of faith on to the next generation. And those three things are, just very briefly, we'll cover them in the weeks ahead, are firstly, the confessions. Notice there's an S on that. And then there's creeds and catechisms. But the first one is confessions, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, when I say confessions, I'm not talking about confessions singular. A, the conf, a normal singular confession is when you admit your sins to God or to another person. It just means owning up in the old sense of the word or admitting to something. But confessions with a yes, the plural, they are statements of faith. And specifically, they are detailed descriptions of what Christians believe, written in kind of a topical essay way, with supporting Bible verses to support those views. They, uh, and they say, this is what we've believed and has always believed for 2,000 years as historic Christianity. The second tool that we use, and we're going to look at next week, are creeds. And creeds are something like very short statements, very short statements of our belief that were typically, get this, memorized. They were memorized, just like you drill into your kids their tables. And their ABCs, these are the things that were often memorized. And they were often recited in the early church every Sunday, out loud, often after a communion or before a communion or at baptisms. And the third tool throughout history that churches have used are a very old, archaic word today, but nevertheless it still has value. Catechisms. And what they are, a simple teaching tool where you have questions and pithy answers. The teacher asks a question, 
and there's a response that you learn and you give back. And that's how these doctrines were carried forward year after year. Now, whether you realize it or not, doesn't matter. Whether you, even if you're an atheist, everybody's got a creed. Everybody has. Atheists say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, that's a reflection of their value system. And most creeds today are very self-centered versus the Christian ones which are God-centered. For example, today in the world that we live in, the creeds uh, sound like this. I've got to do what's best for who? Me, right? And some people live their lives that way. Here's another one that you see. He who has the most toys wins. That's a creed of today. It expresses a philosophy behind that. And it's expressing the purpose of life is actually to get how many things can you get? That's what they're saying is valuable to them. Today I want to look at though, completely contrast that to our Christian creed. So for the first 2,000 years, we've developed creeds, catechisms, and confessions, which express what we believe, what we all hold in common. doesn't matter whether you're a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Catholic or a Baptist or whatever. All of these points that we're going to look at today, we all agree on. And by the way, just one other small point before we dive in. Creeds were often written specifically to correct errors that were creeping in from different places. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of these. And I want, because the reason for this is I want you to know the roots of your faith. It's an intelligent faith and has good reason in there. Come, let us reason together. Today we're going to look at what we just sung. That's called the Apostles' Creed. And it's one of the oldest creeds known to Christianity. Written by the apostles and agreed on by every Christian in the world, regardless of the, if you could excuse the expression, of their brand. This is what's agreed. And I'd like us to read it together. So let's all, with enthusiastic voice, follow along with me. Let's read it. I believe in God the Father, almighty Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his one only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Third part, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What you have just read has been read by Christians for 2,000 years. Now, do you notice there, there are three parts to this. The first part is about God, the second part about Jesus, and the third part about the Holy Spirit. Question, which gets the most coverage? There's a reason for that. Remember I said that creeds were often um, put out there and designed to correct error. We'll get to that in a second. There were nine things it covers that Jesus did there. There was conceived, 
of a virgin, born, uh, sorry, conceived, and born, conceived the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. He suffered, crucified, buried, descended, rose again, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and you'll come again. Now, the Apostles' Creed states essential knowledge about Jesus. And again, they were written to counteract errors that were just floating around. Today, we should write one to counteract what I call the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But that's another situation. We'll talk about that later. One of the reasons why this was written is because there was a, a, an error floating around that God, Jesus could not possibly be God and man at the same time. This is why this was written. And by the way, why couldn't he just be God? Forget the human part. Why couldn't he? Is it really that important that he was actually a human like you and I? You better believe it. It has profound implications for your life and mine. And today we're going to look at why it is important for Jesus Christ not only to be God, he's always been God, but also to be a human being. And that difference will make a difference in your life. So when you think of God, I want to ask this question. What comes to your mind? For some of you, is he like historically like a cosmic cop that's waiting to nab you the moment you go over the speed limit? <laughs> or others people falsely think the opposite. Oh, he's like a, um, you know, an impotent grandfather who can't really do anything. He just watches you do wrong and winks at you. Others posit that God is like a creator to get that part who kind of winds up the universe like a clock and then just steps back and lets it run downhill. And he doesn't, in, he doesn't come into our time and space dimension. Today, they are all false beliefs about God. What we're going to look at are some real characteristics of God and Jesus and see the difference it will make in your life. So, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he exploded the Jewish myths Weird ones about God in two words. He said, when you think about God, I want you to think about particularly two words. And those two words were, our Father. God said he wants to be known as your Father. That's why the creed starts out, I believe in God the Father. That means we do not believe in God, our mother. God is not gender confused. It says we believe in God, the Father. We know the Bible teaches that God creates males, one category. Females, another category. To express his image. In fact, he said, let us create man in our own image. Male and female, he created them. Nothing in between. And he said, you are to call me Father. That's my title. But here's the problem I found. A lot of people, including myself, grew up with an alcoholic father. Or perhaps for you it's an abusive father. Or a distant father. Or an apathetic father. And so some people transfer that to God. And they're weary of God because they've got a false image of him, of that word father. 
And they kind of think, well, if God is like my dad, nah, no thanks, time out. And it's a big misperception. So forget the misperception. What really matters is truth, who God really is. That's what matters. So today, I just want to knock down a couple of misperceptions of what kind of Father God is and replace that with the truth of God's word. Five attributes to be really clear what this God our Father is. Number one, we know that he is an extremely competent Father. That means he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, he's got all of the power. He can do anything that's consistent with his character. That's why the creed starts out, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Look at that word, Almighty. That means he's got all of the power. And by the way, I feel just this quick sidebar here. He puts Satan in a sandbox. And he says, that's where you will play no more. He's got all the power, but somehow he uses him for his purposes. Satan hasn't got anywhere near as much power as you've given him. He's only given as much power as God allows him to have. He has all the power, God does. Luke 1, 37 says, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is beyond his ability, his resources. So there's an implication for that. He can handle any problem that you give him. Any problem. So all things are possible with God because he's a competent father. Secondly, we clearly know, just look at nature around us, he is a creative father. We know God loves to create because that's what the Bible says. The very first book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Wow. What a creative God. I was just saying to my wife today, we've got these beautiful spring flowers coming. Out of the same soil comes iridescent colors of, of like a, a, a um, magenta. Other ones, iridescent. I said, hang on, it's all black soil. What makes the difference here? You know, dirt, it just struck me afresh. Well, it's the instructions and the coding in the DNA that set all that. Incredibly complex. Out of the same brown dirt. Amazing. Creative. God loves variety. Have you ever noticed this? He never makes copies of anything. I mean, I would have thought snowflakes would be okay to make the same, you know. Give them a break here. I've had seven standard issues, you know, of a snowflake. But not God. Everything is different. He creates originals. Every thumbprint, every retina print is different. He's very creative. Now, the next part of the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, today, most scientists agree that the universe had a beginning. So that gives people a big problem. What was before? Before time? Space, I mean matter. Whatever made time, space, and matter had to be timeless because there was no time. No matter. It was immaterial. 
And as we drill down on that further, the cause is always greater than the effect. So whatever created this universe, which is the effect, was much greater. Something to think about there. So either no one created something out of nothing, or someone created something out of nothing. So for me, you'd have to have enormous faith to believe that all is just a matter. Imagine somebody said to you, Oi, Desmond, go and move Mount Wellington from this side of the island to the other. That's a lot of dirt to come from nowhere, shovel by shovel. Imagine the universe, the matter alone. It staggers the mind. Where did that come from? For me, you'd have to have enormous faith to believe it's all an accident. Just even going on a nanoscale now, just a nucleus... In a little miserable amoeba, the simplest known cell known to man, just the nucleus of the amoeba has the equivalent of ordered information of 32 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's 44 million words, word perfect, including punctuation. If you get it wrong, it doesn't work. That's just the nucleus. If you stretch that to the entire amoeba, there's the equivalent of 1,000 sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica, coded information. That's 32,000 encyclopedias. It's ridiculous. I like to think of it this way. In America, we got, rather than just Cheerios and stuff, we have this little called alphabet soup. So imagine, rather than coming, you pour out your cereal packet, you've seen this, and you pour it out, it's got all the different letters. Imagine if one day, it just the, you're not the... The, the packet of cereal over, and all of a sudden, you, you look carefully, and then you saw, enjoy your breakfast, don't forget to put out the rubbish, love mum. Spelt out magically as it just randomly spilt out there. You go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can read meaning into that. That's the science of semiotics, when you can extract meaning out of that, and you can read it and infer meaning. Behind meaning, there's always a mind. Random doesn't have a mind. That is not an accident. That will be evidence, take out the rubbish, especially, love mum, of intelligent design behind that statement, right? <laughs> it's not random. Design always indicates a designer. There's no accident. There was a creative plan with an intelligent mind behind everything. He's a creative father. Number three, we know that God is a consistent father. This attribute I love because my father was not consistent. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. We know he's consistent. A lot of fathers that you knew were unpredictable. They were fickle. And inconsistent fathers, listen carefully, inconsistent fathers produce insecure children. But God, thank the Lord, is a consistent father. God is never moody. He never has a bad day. The truth is, God's character is consistent. I love that. He is therefore dependable. I love that. He's reliable. He's worthy, therefore, of my trust. He's consistent, therefore, he can be counted upon. The Bible says this, every good and perfect gift is from the Father who does not change. The reason why he doesn't change is he never makes a mistake. 
And why doesn't he make a mistake? Is because he has all of the knowledge. Not like you and I, we make a plan, jeepers, we're going to change it 56 times, right? Oh, I didn't think about that. Because I'm not omnipotent, or omniscient. I don't have all the knowledge that I need. He's not going to love you today. This is an important point and the implication here. God is a kind of father because he's so consistent. He's not going to love you today and not love you tomorrow. Thank you, Lord. I love that. Number four, God is caring. He's a caring father. And he loves you more than you will ever realize. God's compassion for you is probably his most outstanding quality. The Bible says this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who honor him. Now, a bit of a sidebar there. Worry is a telltale sign that you have temporarily lost your mind and forgotten who God is. <laughs> You've been overwhelmed by circumstances or emotions that have clouded your mind. And you've forgotten that God is competent. He can handle anything. He's creative. He's got more ways to solve the problem than you could even dream of. He's consistent, and he'll do what he says, and he will never, ever stop loving you. And he's caring. He's compassionate, and by the way, he knows what's going on in your life. Fifth and finally in this part, he's close. This father is close. He's available. He's here with you. You may not always feel like he's there, but I found this in my life. Feelings lie. And I've learned not to trust my feelings. Trust your gut. Your gut is terribly inaccurate. If you've had, especially if you had a bad pizza last night. <laughs> it won't be feeling good. Many of you, again, grew up with absentee fathers. Your dads were always busy with other, more important. They never said that, but I'm busy. That's what he'd say. I'm busy. But the implication is, with more important things than me right now. Or maybe when your dad was home, he was aloof and detached. And therefore, you may have a hard time relating to God the Father. For those of you who felt like that, I just want you to write a very simple sentence, a very short sentence, and it's this. God is never too busy for me. That's a truth. The question is, am I too busy for him? Am I too busy for him? Does Facebook get the first love of my life? Text, email, whatever it is, Instagram. Is that more important? Does that take priority? He's consistent, he's caring, he's close, and he has time for you. Now, this next verse brings it home. Psalm 27, verse 10. If my mother and father abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. In our extended family, we've had two little grandchildren who have been abandoned by other people. 
Many of you know the story. My daughter and my son-in-law have adopted those two. Some of them were found even with the umbilical cord attached. If my mother and father abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. So he's a close father. He says, I'm not going to abandon you. Now the next part, the main part of the Apostles' Creed is about Jesus. And it lists nine things that Jesus did. He was conceived and born. He suffered and died. He was crucified, buried, ascended, rose again, seated the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. So I want to read that last part aloud again, just a part about Jesus. Let's read this together. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and you will come again to... Those nine things are not just random words. They're put there for a purpose. Why do these nine things matter? This is very important. Everything that Jesus did, he did it. For your and my benefit. Not for his. He wasn't lonely and needed us. He doesn't have needs like that. And when you understand this, you are going to love Jesus even more. So let's go through these briefly. Number one. The Bible tells us that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It literally says... To meet our needs. Hebrews 7.26 Jesus is the kind of priest that meets our needs. He is holy. First one of a kind. Nobody else can ever claim that. Holy. Before God, he's completely without sin. He has no fault or no sin in him. That's holy. None of us can say that. So why is it that Jesus had no sin, yet all of us do? And that's how he meets our needs. Well, follow me on this. For God to meet all your needs perfectly, he couldn't just send an ordinary human being like you and I because we are flawed. We have this proclivity to sin. The doctrine that's called original sin. He had to come himself because only God is perfect. And therefore, he had to come in a supernatural way. A woman who was a virgin was conceived conceived and had a baby. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, the virgin birth shows humanity's need for a saviour. God chose to mark the coming of his eternal son, his anointed one, in an extraordinary way. It was prophesied, actually, many times. I've just chosen one of them here from Isaiah 7.14. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means, as you know, what is it? God with us. So God, Jesus has always been God, but what he did, he, didn't, he couldn't come down. You know what happened to Moses when he saw, 
You can never see. So he wrapped himself in flesh to veil the glory. We couldn't stand it. He added human nature to his divine nature. How could he do that? How could he be born of a virgin? Well, here's the number one. Because if you believe in God Almighty, that he can create an entire universe from nothing. And by the way, remember this, scientists do not disagree with that. You certainly believe it's a piece of cake to create a baby in a mother's womb. If he can do anything he wants because he's almighty, and that's not a big deal to God, but he did it to me. And he's number two. Jesus was born of a virgin Mary to be our savior. That's why he was born of the virgin Mary to be our savior. He did not come for his benefit, but to save us. To save us from what? To save us from the penalty of sin against a holy God. To save us from ourselves. To save us from eternal separation from God. Because perfect, if you have perfect and you have imperfect, the moment you mix it, you end up with imperfection. That's not heaven. That's not God's character. So something has to happen here. There's a problem. A perfect God and imperfect people. He came to save us from a meaningless life. Because here's the facts, friends. For some of you who are considering Jesus today, if there is no God, there is no right, no wrong, no meaning. Just personal preference. He came to save us from guilt and worry and bitterness. The Bible says this today in the town of David, a savior, circle that word savior, has been born for you. He is Christ. Very clear. Not Buddha, not Hare Krishna, not Gandhi, nobody like that. Why did he do that? Because he came to save us, not to scare us. He came as a baby. Nobody's scared of a baby. He was both human and God. The Apostles' Creed says Jesus came to be born our Savior. Number three, the Bible says that he suffered to heal our hurt. If you saw the passion based on the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, he was tortured enormously. Before he even went to the cross. Why was he doing that? What was the purpose behind that seemingly insane suffering? Well, Isaiah 53 says it again, very clearly. These are his words. He took our suffering on him. We, he, and he felt our pain for us. He was wounded for the wrong we did. He was crushed for the evil we did. And the punishment which made us well was given to him. We are healed because of his wounds. So Jesus took your pain and your punishment and paid for your sins, which is the ultimate thing that separates you from God, so that you don't have to. So Jesus hung on a cross, a shameful death, so that you don't have to feel that shame and guilt. He's already paid for it. When you stand before God, we're going to get to that at the end. He healed our hurts. Four, he was crucified to make us acceptable to God. That is an amazing truth. 
And it's taught all throughout scriptures. One quick verse from Colossians 1. Now God has made you his friends. In other words, we're no longer his enemies. God has made you his friends again. He did this. How did he do it? Through Christ's death in the body so that he might bring to you into God's presence as people who are holy, people with no wrong, and people that have nothing which God can judge you guilty of. Amazing. Let me explain this verse. When something is wrong, it needs to be corrected. When somebody's done something wrong, they've got to pay for it. That's the concept we get. The word for that's justice. Now, friends, people have forgotten this generally today, that God is not just a God of love. He is a God of justice. He can't go, oh, he can't leave the books unbalanced. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. He showed us both things. Number one, God's love. But number two, God's justice. And here's how it goes. If I break the law, say I speed. I never do that, do I, can we? <laughs> but most of the time not. If I break the law and I get pinged, I know I'm guilty and I have to pay the fine. If I rob somebody's house, I need to go to jail. That's justice. Sin has to be punished. And God is a God of justice. But he's also a God of love. So here's the problem. God says, as I look down and I see this guy, Ian, I see the things he's done wrong. He's thought wrong. He's not perfect. And in his current condition, he can never get to heaven. Because if he brings that with him, we're going to pollute heaven. Corrupt heaven. Evil, by the way, is a corruption of something that's good. So there's no way I can let him into heaven. And that includes you too, by the way. Don't feel too bad for just me. It's you as well. And God says, if I chose to let everybody who's imperfect into heaven, well, guess what? It ain't going to be heaven anymore. It'll be just like earth because there'll be jealousy going into heaven and hatred going into heaven. And listen to this one. We forget this. Gossip going into heaven. An ego, an arrogance going into heaven. And lying going into heaven. It'd be just like earth. That doesn't work. So God says, we've got a problem. I love these people. And I want them with me forever and eternity. But they're imperfect. Stained. Stained with sin. So God says, here's what I'll do. I'll be the substitute. I will come to earth. And I will pay for Ian's ticket. I'll write off his debt. For the things that he's done wrong, I will serve the time due for this guy. And I will cancel the arrest warrant. In fact, the Bible talks about the certificate of debt being nailed to the cross. I will be the substitute. Why would I do that? Because he loves us. That way the debt can be paid. In other words, justice has been done, but I can be loving at the same time. Does that make sense? Both need to happen. That's what God did for you on the cross. I'm going to pay off all the things you've done wrong because of justice. Somebody needs to pay the penalty because the wages of sin is death. That's the bad part. But the good part, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The Bible word for that 
is justified. You might want to write that word down, justified, and that means one simple thing, just as if I'd never sinned. So when somebody uses that theological term, justified, that's exactly what it means. Just as if I'd never sinned. And that is great news. Five. The next thing it says is he died and was buried. What was that for? To free us of the sin of, de- uh, of fear of death. He's, guy, he says this. Guys, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again to show you that death is not the end. You don't have to worry about this. Death. If you trust me, you will live forever. Because, friends, one day you and I are going to die. But if you've trusted Christ, it's going home, just like mum. The Bible says this, because Jesus became like men, and he died so that he could free us. What did he free us from? We were like slaves all of our lives because of our fear of death. I'm not afraid to die. I've been afraid to die for many years. Why? Because I know God. He's my friend. And I know where I am going. Number six. The Bible says that Jesus descended and rose again to forgive our sins. And that's what happened on the very first Easter. That was made possible by that first Easter. So our sins can be forgiven. The creed says Jesus descended into hell. What does that mean? Well, that's actually, to be quite honest, very murky verse. And we've only got one other verse that helps us give any hint what happened there. There's a bunch of speculation. Don't spend a lot of time on that. But 1 Peter 3.19 says he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So he proclaims the good news of salvation. That's implied in the preach. And the truth is we really don't know much about what happened in those three days. If somebody gives you an explicit analysis of that, take it with a very large bag of salt. In other words, no thanks. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Remember that. That'll save you a lot of theological angst and constipation. Okay? The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. So what do you do? Our our entire faith rests on the fact that Jesus did what he said he'd do. He went around saying all sorts of things, which are recorded, by the way, with secular historians as well. People like Josephus and Tacitus. He said things like this, I am the Son of God. That's pretty out there. I'm the Messiah. He said this, which really got in some of their noses, up some of their noses, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Forget the sacrifices. They just point to me, the ultimate and last sacrifice. He said things, outrageous things like this. I am the only way to heaven. I'm going to prove that. By our, I am going to lay down my life willingly. I am going to allow them to kill me. And then I'm going to die for the sins of everybody. And I'll be dead, by the way. Bye-bye for three days. But after those three days, I'll be back. You can count on it. And I'm going to rise to prove that I am the Son of God. Now, some of your friends at work that you're going to see tomorrow have got this idea. They say, well, Jesus was just a good teacher. Friends, it is one thing it is impossible 
to say about Jesus, that he was just a good teacher. Good teachers, think of the best teachers you know, don't go around saying, hi, I'm Brian, and I'm the son of God. They don't say things like that. Good teachers don't say the kind of claims that Jesus claimed. He's either the son of God, who made you, created you, loves you, died for you, and you ought to worship him if that is true, or he's the biggest con man the world has ever seen. And I don't believe he was a con man. He's transformed the lives of billions of people. But he died and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. If Christ has not been raised, pivotal verse, then your faith is useless and you're still under the condemnation of your sins. But the converse of that, the opposite, the reverse, the inverse of that, is because Christ has been raised, your faith is a certain hope, and you're not under the condemnation of your sins any longer. That's why it all depends, friends, on the resurrection. Which is a sidebar why you should be able to defend the resurrection to your friends at work. If you need some help with that, write that in the communication card. Number seven. After Jesus rose again, he ascended into heaven and he goes back to heaven to do what? To give us spiritual gifts, it says here. The Bible says this, when he ascended on high, that means he goes back to heaven, he led a parade of captives and he gave gifts, circle eight gifts, to people. When it says this, he went up, what does that mean? Well, if you do a little bit of study on that, look in the margin of your Bible, it'll show you, see Psalm 68. It's a well-known practice after a conquering king had just taken the place over, he would, the king would take tribute from the fallen city and pass it out and hand it out as a returned victorious conqueror. And Paul here is using that picture to teach that Christ in his crucifixion and his resurrection was victorious over Satan. When Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to the church, some of which he describes in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. You can read that in your own time. The Bible says that when he defeated Satan on the cross, he get back to heaven and he basically says, hey, let's pass out some of these gifts to establish this church for gifts of Christian service to build up her to a position of strength. So God gives Christian gifts and talents for the building up of his church. And then we have these gifts, and some of you here have given your hearts to Jesus. It's important to use whatever he's given you to build up the kingdom. Spiritually mature people Look for proactive use of their gifts and look for opportunities to serve his kingdom. Number eight. Right now it says, right this second, where is Jesus? Seated on the right hand of the Father. And he's seated there to pray for us. What is he doing? He's interceding and praying for you and for me. The Bible says in Romans 8.34, will Christ condemn us? No. For he's the one who died for us, and he came back to life for us. Second, for us. And he's sitting in a place of honor next to God, pleading for us. For those of you counting, that's three for us. Excuse the good of English, but you get the point. <laughs> he's in there praying for us in heaven. Now, the question is here do you ever think to yourself, well, I'm not good enough. God will never save me. Or do you ever think that salvation is for other people and not for you? If you do, at those times, make verses 31 here through 34 actually, 
your constant companions and let the truth of God's word replace those doubts in your mind. Because if God gave his son for you, he is certainly not going to hold back the gift of salvation from you. And if God, through Christ, gave his life for you, he isn't going to turn around there, that verse says that, and condemn you. Now, Jesus will not hold anything from you that you need to live successfully and to the end for him. My little children, the Bible says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. I believe God is calling his church to a higher standard of holiness. In thought, in speech, and in deed. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Brilliant verse of encouragement. Then finally, <clears throat> the Bible says he will come back again. And we miss this so often. We kind of rush over this. For the last two or three minutes, give me your attention. I ask the Lord to speak to you here. Jesus Christ is coming back to judge and to reward two things. Every believer will give an account of himself. I'll explain that in a minute. Romans 14.12 says this. So each of us will give an account of himself to God. Not to your wife, your husband, or to me. To God. Believers will give an account of what? Let me unpack that. Their lives in service to Christ. See, before you were a slave to stuff and things and prestige and power and positions and popularity, now we willingly serve Christ. Believers give an account of how they use their lives that are dedicated to spiritual service to glorify God and to build his bride called the church. Believers give an account of what they built on the foundation of Jesus. This is a gift, what God gives to you, the gift of salvation. You'll never, ever earn that. But what you build on top of that, hopefully, is not wood, hay, and stubble. Because the wood, hay, and stubble, which is the worthless, the frivolous, the shallow activity that has zero spiritual value, is what will be burnt. And the judgment seat of Christ. See, some, well, it's like the seed. It, it grows shallow. It, it, there's a bit of a burst of growth, but then it gets locked out and all these other things vie for our attention. The fire of God's judgment will completely burn up. The Bible tells us wood, hay, and stubble of the words we have spoken and things that we have done and invested time in that have zero eternal value. That's as clear as I can make it. Now, let me be really clear for some of you to clear this part up. This judgment does not determine salvation, which is by faith alone. You can never do anything. Remember, Salvation is by grace alone, lest any man should boast. 
But what you do after that, with that, should be your heart response to God out of thankfulness. <clears throat> now, there's also a second judgment. Those who have rejected Christ. No, don't want to know him. Don't want to serve him. And they will be based, judged on their works and deeds alone. And that's really bad news for people who have not trusted Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says in Galatians 2.16, By the works of the law, no man shall be justified. All their thoughts. Imagine if all of our thoughts were plastered up here as we're flying by. Pictures, images, thoughts. None of that's hidden from God. He has perfect knowledge. All of their thoughts and words, the ones that we have behind closed doors when nobody's watching, with our children, with our mothers, with our neighbours, with our bosses. Their thoughts, words, actions will be judged against God's perfect standard and found wanting. Now the good news for those of us who have accepted Jesus and that second judgment, there will be a reward. Here's a really good news. Look at it here. I assure you, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they've already passed from death into life. See, because with God, there's no past, present, or future. It's all present for him. What does this mean? They've already passed from death into life. It means on judgment day, you bypass a judgment because of one reason and one reason alone, that you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life. Friends, that is a yeah verse. I don't have to go through the judgment. And that is good news. And not only that, I'm going to get rewards. Luke 6.35, love your enemies. Ouch. Do good to them <clears throat> that persecute you. Lend them a hand and don't be concerned if they don't repay. Doesn't sound like the culture of the world. Then your reward in heaven will be great. So God's people will do those actions without expecting to get anything back. Very contrary to the world. God's people's lives reflect the attitude of God himself. Thus their reward will be great and they will be sons of the Most High God. Now the Bible has a lot to say about rewards in heaven. And please again do not misunderstand. Salvation is a pure gift. What you do with Jesus determines your salvation. That's a fact. What you do with your life determines your rewards. Don't forget that. Gold, silver, precious stones in the life of, of believers will survive the refining fire at that judgment day. And believers will be rewarded based on those good works. They'll be rewarded in how faithfully they served the bride of Christ. Because after all, he is coming back for his precious bride. And it reminds me clearly of this because I was at a wedding yesterday. And I saw how precious that bride was to that groom. They'll be rewarded for how well they fulfilled the great commandment. We forget that. It's not an optional extra. It's not the, sometimes I think we read it as the great omission, not the great commission. That's very intentional. That's why it's called the great commission. They'll be rewarded for how victorious they were over sin. They won't use their, their grace as an occasion 
to sin more that grace may abound more. That's crazy thinking. They will be rewarded for how well they controlled their tongues. Self-control, the first spirit. And you know, there are about 40 benefits listed in the Bible of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. But the one I thought I'd just choose to finish on as I close this, I know it's dear to the hearts of many of you. One of the benefits you are going to get in heaven is a new body. The Bible says this in Philippians 3. When he comes back, this is Jesus Christ, he will take these dying bodies of ours and he will change them into glorious new bodies using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything everywhere. So you are going to get a brand new body. And as I close, I'm going to read, lastly, the nine things that Jesus did. <clears throat> Here they are, the, ten, uh, the, the nine things in the Apostles' Creed. He was conceived by God's Spirit to meet our needs. You remember that? He was born to be our Savior. He suffered to heal our hurts. He was crucified to make us acceptable to God. He was buried to free us from our fear of death. He came back. This is not all there is. That's just a door. He descended and rose to forgive our sins, to show us being accepted. He ascended into heaven to give us spiritual gifts. He seated with God the Father right now to pray for us. <clears throat> Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Not in your boss. Not in your spouse. Not in your kids. In Christ, he never dis uh, disappoints. And you'll come again to do two things. Remember, judge and reward. How could you not love a God like that? How could you not serve a God like that? And how could you not praise a God like that? Let's pray. You can just pray this in your mind, but follow along with me with your attention focused on these words. And you may just want to pray, Dear Father, I want to know you as my Father. Thank you that you are competent. That you're all-powerful and that you can handle any problem that I bring to you. Thank you that you're creative and that you know more solutions to my problems than I do. And thank you, Father, that you are consistent that you always keep your word and you never change. You don't love me one day and not the next. Thank you that you're caring, that you care about everything in my life, even how I feel right now. And I thank you, Father, that you are always close. You didn't leave it and say, I'm going to heaven now, bye-bye, I'll leave you with a Bible. Father, thank you for your word, but thank you for your spirit that abides within us. And Father, thank you that if everybody else, my friends, ditch me, befriend or defriend me on Facebook, or whatever it is, turn, give me the cold shoulder, you will never abandon me. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to earth for me. And Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to meet my needs, that you came to earth to be my saviour, to heal my hurts and to make me acceptable to God that you came to set me free from the fear of death and to forgive my sins. 
and to give me spiritual gifts that I can use to build up your church. Thank you, Jesus, that one day that you're going to reward me for my faith and trust that I put in you and what I did with this very brief life that I have here on earth. Father, I'm all in, and I want to serve you completely for the rest of my life. You and you alone deserve all the praise and glory. And all God's people said...